the, the three things that I think our region can be world-class at are, are outdoor recreation and tourism, mm-hmm. value-added ag and food, and then arts, culture, and events and entertainment, right? Those are things that are not, yes, Bellingham can do some and mm-hmm. Everett can do some, but nobody can do those things, especially layered like we can. Hey, Edlers, and welcome to episode 137 of the Camino Voice. Today, I speak with the executive chairman of Spinach Bus Ventures. Please welcome... Andrew Miller. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they're going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, I'm recording this uh, just slightly after Easter, so hope everyone had a good Easter. Um, we actually, um, I don't think I've mentioned it on this podcast. It was kind of hard to talk about and still is to some degree, but uh, my, my mom, uh, about a month ago, uh, had a stroke. And so we've, as a family, been kind of working through all of that. Um, but, uh, a week ago, she was actually brought back home from the hospital, uh, still doing rehab and stuff. Um, but Easter turned out to be the first day that all of the family got to come back together. So my family and my brother-in-law and, or my sister and her family, uh, and all the grandkids. And that was the first time they got to see grandma since, uh, the stroke and everything's happened. So, uh, it was just a really, really special day. On top of it being in a, a big day for us, um, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before that um, we're Christians, and so Easter obviously is a very significant holiday for us. Um, but on top of that, to have, you know, kind of it be this day where we, all the grandkids get to see Grandma again, um, just really, really special day. So, um, yeah, had a great, great Easter. Um, and, uh, yeah, now I'm back into it. So back to the podcast. So, um, anyways, I hope you guys all had a great Easter as well. Um, so today I'm interviewing Andrew Miller, uh, as I mentioned before, and, and some of you might be asking like, wait, isn't this guy from Skagit? Why, why am I interviewing? Um, I actually been trying to expand and uh, branch out a little bit with the command of voice and really reach out to local business owners, um, people that really have grown businesses or, um, are working in their community to make it a better thing. And and Andrew, um, I got connected with him actually from uh, my podcast with Jeff uh, from Cascadia Stoneware. Um, and so he's been on my list for quite a while. And um, Andrew encapsulates so much of what um, I, I want to see in businesses and small business leaders of helping small businesses and the community that you're passionate about. Uh, and, and growing these businesses that further the community, not just, you know, someone's pocketbook. Um, and Andrew has done that. Uh, he's done that in many ways. Um, he started out um, in the Air Force, and we'll get into kind of his whole backstory, which is long and extensive, and he's had a huge amount of experience in all of this. Um, but when he started Spinach Bus Ventures, I can never say that right. Uh, Spinach, Spinach Bus Ventures, um, that uh, it's like a venture group, and it started really small with with uh, taking over Tulip Town. Uh, you might have seen that in like the local uh, Skagit newspaper. Uh, it was a couple years ago now, um, but since then they've continued to add to their portfolio. Uh, and each business is very specifically a small business that is um, trying to move Skagit further ahead. Uh, and, and as many of you know, I'm actually, I live in the Skagit Valley. I live in Mount Vernon, um, but I grew up on Commando. So that's why I'm kind of, I have my feet in both worlds. Um, but fascinating interview, super excited to share this with you guys. And, um, as you may have noticed in my more previous podcasts, um, you know, my podcasts kind of range in time length. Um, you know, some are like a half hour, some are an hour. Um, I'm moving more towards like long form podcasting. Um, so you will notice that some of my episodes go a little bit longer and I'm going to stop breaking those into two different parts. Um, just so you guys can get the whole story in one swoop. Um, so you're going to start seeing maybe some podcasts that come out that are in that hour length. Uh, and you know, hopefully that allows you guys to just listen to it on the way there to work and from work. 
Um, so let me know what you guys think about that, though. You can always email me. It's voice at commandocommons.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, also, follow me on Instagram at, uh, I think it's the Camino Voice is my tag, my symbol. Uh, whatever that thing's called. Handle. That's the word. So, anyways, I've talked long enough here. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Miller. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice. Today, I'm here with the co-owner of Tulip Town, as well as the executive chairman of SB Venture, uh, welcome to the podcast, Andrew Miller. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Andrew. Oh, a little bit about Andrew. I grew up in Mount Vernon uh, on the hill, and I went to Mount Vernon High School and had a great time there. I had the best best experience growing up, I think, that uh, a kid could have. Uh, and then I went and lived in Brazil for two years as a missionary. I okay. came back and uh, joined the Air Force, and uh, I got married and uh, then I've bounced around, haven't been able to keep a job since. And so, you know, we've been, we've been uh, all, all over the world doing all kinds of fun things and uh, ended up uh, home. And that was something that was really important. Along the way, I picked up six kids. So that's a lot, usually what people remember. I uh, talk about being a farmer, but I was a rancher before I was a farmer because I had the six kids. That's the, actually the only thing that qualifies me to be a farmer is that I have a lot of kids. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, we made our way back to Skagit Valley uh, after my, uh, my experience at Amazon. And uh, I said, hey, if I could do anything, I would go home and raise my kids in the environment that I grew up in and solve problems for my neighbors, you know. Yeah. And, and so we've been hard at that uh, ever since. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, so you grew up in uh, Mount Vernon then. Did you spend your entire childhood there then? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I was born in Idaho, but I got here as soon as I could. I was okay. about six months old when my parents uh, moved to Mount Vernon. And yeah, so it's all I ever knew growing up was, okay. was Mount Vernon, yeah. Nice. How was, because <clears throat> Mount Vernon has gone through, much like Camino has, has gone through a very big growth and evolution over the last, you know, 20 plus years. Um, what was Mount Vernon like for you growing up? Mount Vernon, like I said, it was an idyllic uh, place to, to grow up. It was one of those where I walked to school, you know, Jefferson Eagles, and but I would ride my bike up Little Mountain, or we would just you know spend time in the park. And uh, and one of the things that I think is most remarkable about growing up when I did was when you were eleven, it was just common. It was like an expectation that you were out picking strawberries, right? <laughs> and so that was my first job was picking strawberries, and. And then roguing spinach, and then you know, and I, I happened to break out of that and was a lifeguard at Clear Lake. But it was this, <laughs> it was great that everybody worked. And I, I remember I was a junior in high school, and the and the, the the English teacher was like, "Hey, write about what you did this summer." We're all sitting there blinking at each other, like, "Well, hello, we all worked in the fields, you know." And she said, "No, that's actually pretty remarkable that you, as you know, white middle class kids, are are working in the fields all summer. Like that doesn't happen everywhere else in the world." And we kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, "Well, this is this is all we know." Uh, but that really has shaped, you know, as I look around at, at my friends and, and classmates and it is, that's, it's a, it was a defining experience. It was a, a great time to be able to take on the world. You know, we won state basketball championships and baseball and so we were all over the place and nobody could keep us down because we were kids from the Valley, which was really exciting. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, um, kind of similar to like what twin city was out, out here. Like a lot of the kids would get summer jobs yep. out there and just totally. go and work the fields and. Um, well, I, I like to say that that uh, Stanwin Camino identify more with Skagit than Snohomish, so you can put yes. me on record for that. And from a <laughs> cultural perspective, it's absolutely true, yeah. right? Now we just have that rural ethic, and 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 that was amazing. I don't want to say it's remarkable. Growing up, it wasn't remarkable. Looking yeah. back, it was absolutely foundational to to who I became. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you work a few days in the field or all summer. Yeah. <laughs> you you learn a lot about just you know getting stuff done. Just totally. going next thing, next thing, and. And not having to complete it. I think um, when you work in s smaller scale things in school, like you have these deadlines, you've got these projects, mm -hmm. you get them done and they're done. Yeah. Um, but that's not how most of the world works. Most mm -hmm. of the world, you step into a story that's already being written and you never get to finish it. Right. Well, and farming is never done. Yes. Right. And, and, <laughs> and that's the other thing. When I came back to Skagit Valley, I worked in economic development and I just remember time and time again, it was, oh, Andrew's from here. And the, the barriers came down because not everybody that I worked with was, was from here. And I, I started to wonder why. I'm like, well, that's actually kind of, that's a little bit lame, isn't it? And then I realized it really comes down to trust uh, because, you know, Skagit Valley and, and, and Stanwin, Camino and the, these valleys here in, in, in Western Washington were carved out of farming, logging and fishing. And those are three of the most dangerous, you know, uh, occupations that you can do. And so trust is a really, really big deal. And, and when you're 
from the community. We, we joke on Spanish bus all the time. If we screw something up, we're going to hear about it at church, right? Our yes. parents are going to hear about it. <laughs> and so there's staying power. Uh, and, and it really just gets back to kind of that, that value statement of, hey, we're, we're in it for the long haul and we know we're going to have to, we're, we're not in and out. Yeah. Uh, and so you're going to have to own what you come, you, you come up with. And so, yeah, it's stuff that you learn in the fields. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think <clears throat> that is something, uh, with this area, uh, both, both areas, but, um, I actually live in Mount Vernon. Oh yeah. Um, but I grew up on the Island. Um, but that is something like when you're talking to people like Skagit is, is a weird subculture of the West coast in the oh, sense of totally. like, you know, you've got King County, you've got these counties that are all like there, they've got lots of people that come in and out. Um, but Skagit is very much for Skagit. Like it, it's protective of itself. It's protective of its people. Uh, and the land, like it cares about everything from top to bottom. Right. Well, and I talk all, a lot about, you know, the, the rate of change outside of Skagit Valley from Arlington to Alger, right, is, is changing so fast. And it's almost like we're at the end of the whip. Yeah. So that we that gives us a little bit of time to position, to position ourselves. And sometimes it creates a false sense of security, right, where it's like, oh, we don't have to change because the world's, you know, going to just leave us alone, where that's absolutely not the truth. And yeah. I, I think one of the opportunities, especially that we've leaned into on the spinach bus is just really trying to figure out the economics mm -hmm. of what does quality of life look like, you know, in the next, if, you know, 20 months or the next 20 years, yeah. how can we position against the, the, the urban pressures of two of the hottest economies in North America between Vancouver and Seattle? What does that mean for those of us that, that grew up here? And it stings when we get it wrong. I mean, we're getting it wrong on housing yeah. massively. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in small businesses and some of these other things where we're not, I don't think we're leaning into our, our unique value propositions like we could. And I don't blame anyone for that. Um, uh, what I think is we've got some, some opportunities to rally and do better, yeah. but it is, it is in, in many cases it's Fort Skagit, it's Fort Stanwood, it's Fort you know, where you just, you want to push back against the things that you don't like. Right. Um, but we got to come up with things that we do like and that we can do really well pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So um, what did you go to school for? Oh, uh, that's funny. I was thinking about that on the way down. I went to school really for the credential and for the network. Uh, and that's why I have a Bachelor of Science in Liberal Arts. Okay. Right? <laughs> my, yeah, my undergrad, I was in the Air Force, and I knew that I wanted to get a commission. And the Air Force doesn't really care what your bachelor's degree is in. Okay. So I, uh, I was a linguist, so I, and I did a lot of club tests. But in, I think in the first four years that I was in the Air Force, we moved 11 times. Okay. But every place that I, every base I stopped at, I would take classes. And so I was able to package my, my, uh, all of those credits together. Uh, like I said, in an undergrad degree and got picked up for officer training school. And then it, when I was in Spokane, I went to, uh, I went to school for Gonzaga tickets, right? Uh, <laughs> so my first master's degree is in organizational leadership at Gonzaga. Cause I knew that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew I wanted to be a leader. Yeah. So I got a degree in leadership studies, uh, organizational leadership, uh, and I got Gonzaga tickets. So go Zags. <laughs> Uh, I, I, and then I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer because the people that I looked up to were lawyers. And so that opportunity presented when I, I, I came off of active duty and I became a full-time Air National Guardsman. So I got to work all day. Uh, and then I go to law school at night. Uh, and that's, again, I, I don't have, there's no lawyers in my family, nothing like that. When I looked around, the people I looked up to, uh, were attorneys. Uh, and then when I was at law school, uh, this is of course post 9-11, but uh, a lot of the work that I did as, as an intelligence officer was in counter, counter narcotics, um, counter terrorism. And so I got pulled into, uh, or I get really pulled into, I was attracted to the center for home and defense and security at the Naval postgraduate school. Okay. And so, and I didn't take a sabbatical. And then at that point I was working full time. We had five kids and I was a, a law student and I was a member uh, and I was getting another master's degree. And so I actually found my limit in preparing for the bar exam and trying to knock out my thesis at the same time. So I delayed <laughs> my thesis and took the bar exam, which I passed, which is fun. Um, but I love that. I love that program. And I went to I, I, I tackled that program. So I went to school for that program because of the network. OK, I had a chance to uh, to, to be in Monterey for a, uh, a week every quarter and and spend time with the movers and shakers across Homeland Security. So, you know, sheriff's deputies from L.A. County and NYPD and NYFD and the State Department and FBI. And that was just uh, that was the coolest, coolest experience just in, in terms of exposure. So I went, that's that's when I went for that. And then lastly, I got my uh, MBA from PLU and I went to that. I went to school for that 
because uh, at that point I'd had enough friends that had had practiced law. They said, Andrew, you don't want to get into this. <laughs> and the only way to justify getting a JD without practicing is to get that MBA. And so I went to PLU and, and picked up the MBA, okay. uh, which I absolutely adored too. That was a, that was a lot of fun. And so that's uh, and and uh, so I'm. I, I, that I know of, I'm only the only trilingual JD MBA in, in Skagit. And that's, of course, what happens. You don't go to work for McKinsey in Miami. You go, you move home and become a tulip farmer in Mount Vernon. So that's <laughs> that's what I've done with all that education. Sorry, Mom. Wow. Okay, so um, how did you get into the Air Force? So I was a, I, I got married right when I got back from, from Brazil, and I knew that, one, I come from a long line of veterans. My dad is an Air Force vet, my okay. uncle, all of my uncles. All the way back through the Revolutionary War, right? We can, we can trace that, wow. and so I, I had an interest in serving, and uh, and and I spoke Portuguese, and I really really found out that I love foreign mm-hmm. languages and that I love uh, really associating with other cultures, and then I found out that you could be a linguist in the in the military, and then that just took off. Okay, and so I joined the joined the Air Force to be a linguist, and it's fun. You don't know what language you're going to get when you, you you sign up to be a linguist, uh, and I was assigned Serbo Croatian. Right, which is super cool because I, here I was going to go. And the other thing that the the worst kept secret in, in in the military is that the language school is in Monterey, California, which is the coolest assignment that you can get. Okay. So you're paying. What you mean to tell me is you're going to pay me to live in Monterey, California, and learn foreign languages? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that assignment. <laughs> um, and uh, so I got there, and then they ended up. Uh, and this is actually very timely. But they had they were transitioning a bunch of, of Russian linguists into Serb, and this okay. is this is in '98. Uh, so they said, well, we're not going to put you in, sir, but what language do you want? I said, well, if you, how about Spanish? And I said, well, you already speak Portuguese. We're not going to teach you Spanish. I said, yeah, but if you teach me Spanish, then I'm going to be able to communicate with 98% of the people in our hemisphere. I said, okay, maybe we'll do that. <laughs> so I moved into Spanish where I did really well, which uh, it, it worked for me because then I got my choice of assignments and I got to fly uh, in the back of C-130 uh, jamming platforms out of Tucson. So that, I had the coolest, coolest uh, enlisted job that you could have. I was an enlisted air crew member. So I got to wear the flight suit and walk around like I own the joint, and that was that was that was great. So that that was the attractor there, and then I commissioned, and and that was great too. I really enjoyed being an intel officer. Okay, wow, yeah, you have an you uh, looking at your background, you had an extensive uh, time in the Air Force and military, and yeah, um, yeah. Um, I mean, thank you for your service, but well, yeah, the, the uh, it, I mean, what were your your biggest things that? That taught you, I guess. And- well, I never did one thing. And that's the other thing. People try to, they, they look at that and they say, there's no way, even living in fast forward, Andrew, you don't be able to, you, you're not, nobody does all of these things. And, and I think I, I had a, a, a Sunday school teacher growing up that would say, we just do hard things and take advantage of opportunities. And so I've kept doing that. And uh, I, I think for me, that some of the most, the, the, the experiences that I had in uniform that are most cherished are, are really in uh, it's not, not in killing people and breaking things. Right. And that's what the department of defense is. That's it's their, their motto, if you will, that they don't talk about, but it was in the camaraderie. I really enjoyed being part of an air crew, um, that, that was able to put aside any differences and go, go to work, uh, doing hard things on behalf of our country. Yeah. And so that, that, that was, that was a high point for me. And I also really enjoyed being part of the, of the transition, um, at the at the thinking level, mm-hmm. away from you know when I came in, it was before nine eleven, right? I mean, like I said, it was yeah. about Croatia. You know, the Serbian war was going on, and then I remember walking. Uh, I was in Intel Intel Officer School on the morning of nine eleven, and I remember we walked out of class. Uh, we were going to some graduation or something like that, and the the TV was on in the break room, and somebody said, "Hey, what movie is that?" Because you know you see a, a, the smoking towers and that. That moment changed, you know, the lives of, of, of millions of people. Uh, and it, it made a difference for me as well. I mean, it became very real, very fast, uh, what would be asked of me and, and uh, my family and I. And millions of other families really, you know, made the pivot on behalf of the country. And so that's, that's something that I'll cherish as well as being, being, being a part of that pivot. You know, we definitely didn't do everything right. We continually to, continue to, to fail forward in, 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 in many ways. But I, I was proud to, to have been able to serve during this time. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So then, um, on, on top of that side, uh, you also did some work as a professor. I did, yeah. So that's another one of those things where you get you get a terminal degree, and all of a sudden people want to talk to you, especially when you have kind of a niche uh, position and where I sat in terms of strategy and intelligence. And so I taught 
Uh, I got sucked right in with the with the terminal degree to be able to teach in grad school. So I taught online at American Military University and Drexel and Homeland Security and was part of all of all of that. And I what I loved about that is I, I if if you want to learn something, you really need. If you want to, if you really want to know it, you need to be able to teach it. Yeah. And so I was able to do that, and I love being in the classroom. I absolutely love being there, and and virtual or otherwise, just the idea, of just the in, the intellectual curiosity, and and being able to discuss ideas, especially big ideas, which, which is why I really enjoyed teaching grad school. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got to do that as well, and then I taught up at Western when I came back. So okay. I taught in the Leadership uh, Institute at Western, which I absolutely loved. Um, love teaching leadership, love studying leadership because it's, it's, it's foundational to so ma- getting so many things right. Yeah. Uh, and Western's a great school too. So yeah. Got to do so that. what are the, the, <laughs> how do you distill being a good leader? No. Um, what are the principles that through all of your time, both in military, um, your professorship, that leadership, like the core things that you have found that are important? Yeah, I, I think, well, and it, you wouldn't know this by looking at it, but uh, focus. Focus is absolutely critical. And then having at the same time a, a wide enough scope to appreciate that you don't know everything. Yes. To be able to come in. And then what I've, I don't know, I talk about my superpowers. You know, if I have a superpower, it's in bringing a lot of enthusiasm and a critical eye at the same time to, to, to challenges and opportunities to turn around and say, hey, here's, here's what could be who's on board. And then turning around and saying, hey, well, here's what we need to resource that. Where I have not done a good job, and this is confessional, is I, and, and maybe it's because I was in the military so, for so long, but I always assume that people upstream from me uh, are going to have my back in the same way that I have the back of, of my team, which is another reason that I bounce around quite a bit. Because if, if people say that and they do, don't do that, it's, it becomes pretty apparent pretty quick. Yeah. And so that's, that's one thing that I've, I've absolutely, so there's probably two tensions in there. In, in that uh, being all in and supporting the team and building a vision yeah. uh, is something that I think is critical. You, you, you can do management without that, right? Yeah. Just moving resources around, making sure that, and, and, and not to throw any shade at management is absolutely critical for the, for the good order and function of any organization, but leadership, really that compelling vision of what could be and distilling that down into next actionable steps that people yeah. actually, you know, that they've got the, the reach and the muscle to move that lever. Yeah. Um, that's, there's a skill in that. And, and I've, I've enjoyed finding what it, that means for me. And I think at, at its core, I was just talking to my son this morning, you know, it's, it's about empathy and curiosity mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and really just, if, if anything, enthusiasm coming at something because the life will keep kicking you in the shins. And boy, we're, we, we see that that's, that, that is, has been our, my life at <laughs> least, you know, as a tulip farmer as well. And, and it, it's interesting. It's, it's been fascinating to, to have both the, the educational background on that and then to, to live it and then to live it in front of half a million people, yeah. you know, that are watching or, or, or more, uh, which is not something that I had supposed before we got into this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, uh, that has been the biggest thing in, in running a small business is, um, deciding the direction that you want to take it, um, figuring out what is your mission. Um, and not just being something you plaster on the wall that like, Hey, look, there's our mission statement, but really living that out and having your team see that. Um, and, and this kind of all falls to me is the biggest thing has been company culture is like building the culture that you want, because if you have the culture, that you want, but the team that understands and buys into that, the customers will be taken care of well. Like the jobs will be done well. Like everything else falls underneath that, and that's the hardest part. <laughs> no doubt, no, and and nothing is harder. And, and, and again, and it's funny too. It's like, what do I know about small business other than you learn small business by doing small business? Because my background have been in government and law and business, and I was at Amazon, which might as well be government, right? And I'm just so. <laughs> It's so big, and then to turn around and say, "Hey, no," uh, and that's a cliche in small businesses. It you know it only works if you do. Yeah. And that, if you're just chasing a buck, is is very very difficult, especially to build a team around. I get it. If you're a one man or woman truck, and and you're just a subject matter expert, and you're really good at what you do, absolutely you don't your why is is yours, right? It's your boat in the driveway, or a week in Hawaii, whatever it is. It's your motivation. As soon as you need to scale that to a plus one. It's more than just making money, and and that is something that I think is is fascinating uh, because it's it's also on trend for uh, an evolving uh, demographic, right? The the, yeah. the market, if you will, for what especially for things that we can do really well here uh, in in Western Washington. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think um, I've said this many times on the podcast, but we're in such a unique uh, area of just even within the country 
that so much of what we need, produce, everything can come right from here. Oh, yeah. Like, we don't need to go outsource it or bring it in. Like, we have everything here. We do. Yeah. And uh, food security <laughs> should never be issued, especially with, the you know, the... the all of the grain and potatoes that we can make, nobody is going to go hungry if we can get this right, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's that's pretty remar- remarkable. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's very cool. So um, so then uh, you mentioned already you worked at Amazon. Mm-hmm. What kind of – because you you were in the military and you've done these other things. What kind of got you into Amazon? Yeah, I failed into Amazon. Uh, <laughs> no. I, I So I was at Expedia. And I, I was brought on at Expedia to so that was my transition from 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 the military, in into the private sector, uh, and I, I did a little bit of consulting at Warehouser, which was awesome too. That was strictly strategy, and then in Expedia they brought me in based on my my planning expertise. Uh, okay. So it, it was to redo their business continuity program for one of the divisions. Cold, right? They they brought it literally. I I came in. The guy that hired me was his last official duty was hiring me, and then he was gone. I was like, okay, so apparently this is a thing. Uh, and I finished that job up too fast, and I got I moved into uh, an, an area of interest for me was in veterans and supporting veterans, mm-hmm. and so I helped build our veterans recruiting program. And uh, you know, there's a saying in venture capital that timing is everything. And apparently, I was about a year early in that space because they had decided that they wanted to do some other things, and then turned into, hey, you know, if you want to be a recruiter, which I did not want to be a recruiter, I wanted <laughs> to build a program because I'm a builder. Uh, and then and then it uh, opportunity opened up at Amazon. Uh, and of course, you know, it's like it was across the lake. We lived in Puyallup at the time. So it was it was easy. My wife's from Puyallup. And uh, so I wanted to tackle that one. It's a great it's a great I knew it was a be it would be a great place to have been from. It's a great place to prove yourself. Yeah. And so I got I moved into business continuity uh, there as well in, okay. the, in the health and safety and security department, which I absolutely loved. I got to build a team. But I had three bosses in nine months and each one of them had a different idea of the direction that they wanted to take oh, the work. And, and I could deal with that. Um, it was I was making commitments to my team members. Then yeah. I was having to walk back, and you know, so we were yeah. we ran the crisis center, and so it was kind of like nine one one for for corporate Amazon, and and I needed to have a, a watch supervisor, if you will, and uh, and so I would bring I would bring guys and gals in and say, hey, look, here here's what I need, and they said that's great, but I want to go get my MBA at UW, and I thought that's great, no, because there's we're always open, so if you want to work weekend, you know, t- double shift on a weekend, and from 10 to 6 a.m. every day, that's that's great. We can do that. And then, the, you know, I'd have a boss say, oh, no, we don't do that around here. I'm like, well, it's Amazon. We're flexible. There's actually, well, I, actually, I just don't like that. You have to tell them they can't do that anymore. And, they, you know, they've organized their lives around that, and uh, I made a commitment to them. And I said, yeah, this is, if this is how it works here, it's really not going to work for me. Yeah. I think we really get our best out of our people when we say, here's, here's, the, here's the nature of the opportunity. What do you think? And then allocate the resources and the talent to make that happen. And yeah. I think at the Bezos sphere, you see that, but I got stuck in the Bozo sphere at Amazon <laughs> and uh, it just didn't work. And so we, we took a step back and said, if we could do anything, where we, what would we do? We would take that same approach and, and go home. Uh, and so that's what we did. We came nice. home, yeah. So what was that like for you then? You, you finally left Amazon. You're, you're looking at the, you, I'm assuming you didn't have anything lined up yet. No, well, I didn't. And and that was kind of one of those things where it's just a leap of faith. And uh, the Economic Development Alliance of Skagit County uh, was, you'd ask, was, was reorganizing at the time. And I knew some folks. And and like a lot of things, uh, it wasn't one of those things where you, you go to school for. But I looked at it and said, well, nobody goes to school for economic development. This is just problem solving, right? This yeah. is a strategy. This is, I can do that. And so I sat down with the CEO there and, and he said, yeah, that looks like something we could do. And so, and what I absolutely loved about that job was I really got to study the opportunity. I got to take a step back and say, Hey, okay, here are the systems, here are the opportunity, here are the trends. Um, and here are some of what I think could be the unique value propositions for, here are the things that we can be best in the region and maybe even the world at. Mm -hmm. Um, and we should probably organize, you know, our businesses and certainly our systems and, and infrastructure around taking advantage of those and making them approachable, right? Yeah. To, and that's that's something that I found really, really interesting is there's still an opportunity to do that here in Skagit and in Stanwood, so. Yeah. Yeah. So what did that kind of look like for you then, getting into it all? Uh, well, it was... It, it was great you know, I, I, because I got, I got to have that curiosity of tell me about your work. Tell me about this. And I, I love sitting down with, you know, w- with two and a half feet of printed out reports and 
reading books and listening to podcasts and, and a lot of just in time learning around that and saying and really bringing my curiosity to both conversations with people and then seeing how policy affects people. And so I, I found hope every day in economic development, which yeah. is something that that that's that's pretty rare, mm-hmm. you know, especially with all the doom and gloom that you see. And so I, I enjoyed that, you know, at the I also gave me time to go to my kids tennis matches and, and it was just great not having a you know to schedule an hour and a half commute and it took me 12 minutes to get from from home and it, it's funny because you you know we have meetings in the mornings like you know in, in seattle and bellevue there's there's no morning meetings because you're in the car right. right and and service groups that meet at eight o'clock in the morning or seven thirty in the morning for rotary or something that, that, that i loved getting back to that and everyone now i can't do meetings after 4 30 because i coach soccer it's like, yeah. well, of course you do. Everybody does, right? And yeah. and it was that was so refreshing to come back to. Yeah, that's awesome. So then, um, how did you get? Uh, so I guess during this time, then, is this when you were kind of looking at other opportunities for yourself as far well, as other business ventures? Yeah, I, what I did is I tried and for almost three years to get people to do these ideas, right? And it's like, well, somebody should really do this, and somebody, and I was again raised that somebody's looking back in you at, in the mirror, right? Yeah. And so uh, I was no, no chance encounter, but I was a yell leader uh, in high school and a bunch of the cheerleaders had gotten together. This is the only time, and my, you know, God bless my wife, but she says, yeah, go ahead. You should go out and, and go out with all of your high school cheerleader friends, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> so we did and, and I con- connected with a couple of them and Rachel and Angela just said, you know, they, they had not been back to, to the Valley in a while and, and they kind of pulled me inside and they said, Hey, you know, what happened? It just doesn't feel like home anymore. What's going on? I said, well, I'll tell you what happened. What we really need is a vision and some capital to do some stuff. And they said, okay, you do the vision and we'll come up with the capital because it, you know, our, we feel like there's some things that we could do in our community and we can do them better. And, and being from here, uh, creates. And so that's been our tagline is, is, you know, we, we work on those projects that are important to us um, because this is what raised us. We, yeah. these, these are the things that were, were important. And I put together kind of an investment portfolio and strategy around value. Added. And again, I've said that the, the three things that I think our region can be world-class at are, are outdoor recreation and tourism, mm-hmm. value added ag and food, and then arts, culture, and events, and entertainment, right? Those are things that are not, yes, Bellingham can do some and mm-hmm. Everett can do some, but, but nobody can do those things, especially layered like we can. Yeah. Uh, and I said, we need to show the community that we can be successful in these things. Uh, and then, so that's how we got jumped into all of the different businesses that, that we're doing. Okay. Awesome. And so where does the name, uh, I called it SB Venture in the, in the intro, but you, you mentioned yeah. it as Spinach Bus. Spinach Bus. Yeah. So Spinach Bus is fun. It's like, well, what are we going to call it? Well, Spinach Bus, uh, growing up, you would, you would meet in downtown, uh, right now where there, there's a 7-Eleven going in right down the, downtown off of um, Kincaid. It was the old Alf Christensen Seed processing plant that was there. And so every morning, 7 a.m., parents would drop off all their 13-year-olds and and you'd hop on the bus, and it was called the spinach bus. And <laughs> it was the most fun, hard work that you could do. Yeah. Uh, and we said, that's, that's very fitting for what we want to do next, yeah. is, is we want to do the hard work that needs to be done in our community and have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. And, and we, we've shown that. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I love the name. <laughs> so, um, so I'm assuming then through all of this then, um, how did you guys come in contact with Tulip Town and, and the owners? Yeah, the so I put together a list of about 30 different potential acquisitions or people that we should talk to, things that we could do when we when we started Spinach Bus. And it, Tulip Town was on the list. It was not even in the top mm-hmm. 10. And uh, But because tulips are so iconic for Skagit Valley, uh, we Rachel and, and Donnie and, and Angela all went to, three of my partners, uh, went to a, the uh, Tulip uh, Festival Gala, this must have been in 19, 2019. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I wasn't there because I was I, I was halfway I was on my way to to Moab with my kids for spring break and I get a call about Tri Cities uh, from Rachel saying hey I think we should buy Tulip Town. <laughs> so apparently what had happened at, at this gala is that Tom and Jeanette Degotti who were the who were the the founders and former owners uh, stood up and just said you know here we we've been trying to sell the farm there have been fifteen other people that have been interested but they're either they don't share our values or they're from out of the area and we really just want it to to stay local and that really struck a chord uh w- with our team there and i think that, that was on a thursday we had an offer on saturday uh was accepted and i be monday when or the monday when i got back i became a uh a, a tulip farmer in in training wow. uh, with tom 
Uh, and that was curious too, because we, I, I certainly, when I, I said, Hey, yeah, we should do this. I didn't think, Hey, I'm going to become a tulip farmer. Now, Tom, uh, was in his eighties and, uh, no spring chicken, but he was going to teach our team, you know, how, how to, to, to grow tulips. And he ended up passing away two weeks before we closed on the property. Mm. Uh, he, he, on his tractor with his boots, he went out with his boots on, on his farm. And so that was, wow. that was how he wanted to go according to Jeanette. And so, uh, but that threw me headlong into, you know, we were able to to, to retain the team there, who then taught us um, to how to how to be a tulip farmer. But it, it became really apparent really quickly that uh, one of us, as an owner, needed to be on the farm, making sure things uh, were, were happening, and and that fell to me, and I I, I loved it. I loved, I, and it was funny too because I remember it's like I did, didn't grow up farming. I didn't. You know, I uh, never thought that I'd, you know, be a farmer, but I remember waking up one, I think it was in June, uh, after we we had closed, uh, and first thing I did, you know, four o'clock in the morning, I rolled over to see what the, the, the temperature, the ground temperatures were, and, and, and what the, the moisture was in the soil, because we were going to plant some corn, and I said, am I a farmer? Is this, this <laughs> I think this is what farmers do. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that happened pretty quick, and, and I've enjoyed that ever since. Very cool. Yeah. So... Um, you guys came into possession of it in 2019, mm-hmm. which, um, uh, so as you guys entered into 2020, uh, how, what happened? Oh yeah, no, this is a great story, uh, for the record books, right? No, uh, we, of course we, you, you plant tulips in the fall and you don't expect anything. And I remember in December, I want to say again, as an Intel officer, I try to keep track of what's going on in the world just because it's a hard habit to break. I call myself a recovering intelligence officer. <laughs> but I remember having a conversation with Donnie um, if like first week in January and we we're tracking this stuff. He said, Hey, you know, if, if this goes global, we're, that's going to get weirder quicker. And I said, yeah, but there's nothing we can do about it. So we just got to keep, keep, keep on going on. And it, the field that we planted, it was, is the most beautiful field that we have. It's on a great, it's right. It goes right up against the, the, um, the slough and there's great barns and, and we, it's our biggest field. So we had the most color and then, uh, come first part of March, we knew things were going to get weirder quicker. And then when California shut down, we knew that we would be next. And, and I remember, so we were having daily meetings. I'm out at the farm getting everything ready and, you know, we're, we're anytime hail is the worst thing for tulips. And so hail would come through and we kind of freak out cause we're new at this and, and you worry about it and you worry about a lot of things. And what you don't worry about is people not being able to be on the farm. Right. And then, uh, I remember we huddled around the computer, uh, in the office when the governor shut everything down and I can, I, I stood up, we, all the partners were there. I stood up and there's some tears and I just said, I'm going to go for a walk. And I walk across the parking lot and kind of walking back. And I realized that this is going to be the best thing to happen to our farm. And I think Rachel literally thought I lost my mind. She's like, how can you say that? I said, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. Uh, and that's because that's what we do, right? Yeah. It, it's like we could, you know, get in the collective fetal position and throw up our arms or we can go to work. And so we went to work and we, through everything we had at this, we said, "Here's here's what we need to do. We we need to figure out how to how what revenue can we create." And so we got really creative, really fast, uh, and that that was very very difficult because you've got this pressure of all of the pressures of farming. Now you've got uh, to invent brand new business models over literally overnight. Yeah, like okay, by tomorrow we need to. And, and sometimes it was absolutely on the fly. I remember being on the phone, people were calling, saying, "What can we do? What can we do?" And and uh, People saying, "Hey, can you ship me flowers?" Well, tulips don't ship very well. Yeah, and but that didn't matter because people wanted to support us. And I said, I was on the phone. I said, "I tell you what, we'll call tomorrow and we'll figure out how to get you flowers." And Rachel hung up, and, and Rachel said to Angela, "said Did Andrew just sign us up for shipping flowers? It's a big deal. I mean, have you ever yes. shipped anything? But yes. I mean, we ended up shipping you know tens of thousands of packages all over the country with no infrastructure. None. Of, we just figured it out on the fly, and and those were some of the best." times that we've had as a business. I mean, and I had the added benefit of doing it with my family. So I guess I've got six kids. Every single one of them was involved with that. And, and throughout the pandemic, I, I, at one point, like I had worked with, or had been side by side with two of my sons every day for 18 months for planting and harvesting. And, and we just don't have that experience anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was able to have that during the pandemic and we were really able to, and, and this is a little bit of both the, the, more on the business side than the legal side, but I'm great friends with the dean of the business school um, down on PLU. And so I would call um, Mark Mulder 
now and again about things and and he would you know say hey have you thought about this have you thought thought about that and which was fantastic you know to to feel supported in that way but uh, to to have the opportunity to in real time respond mm-hmm. to a global pandemic and and be the first one out of the gate right this was you only get one shot with tulips right? well can't you hit pause can't you do you know well let, let's wait and maybe in june it'll be right. over no the tulips come on when the tulips come on and if there's no matter to see it then then what do you do right and so i grabbed my cell phone and i went out and i started doing facebook lives and that's really what we're known for now you know our our brand is that we take punches and we give back everything we can, we have and we share color, and we know that people connect through color, and so we share in, in any way that we can. So we developed an app. We did you know, everything under the sun trying to connect people through color, and it became way more than just about growing flowers. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, it was an, uh, actually somewhat similar, not as drastic, but we, we took over uh, the marketplace end of 2019. Rolling into 2020, we're a retail espresso bakery shop. Yeah, and yeah. It was it was an interesting first year of business, but um, it does it. it um, for us, it, it galvanized a lot of things, and it really it puts you in that place where you're like, oh, like now the decision's mine. What are we doing? Oh like, yeah. What's the next step? Yeah. There's no passing the buck. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. So, um, so kind of planning, looking ahead, then you've got. Uh, you've gotten 2021 under your belt of uh, being able to, were you, you guys were right. able to be open. We were, we had a great year and, and weather makes such a big difference, right? So we had great weather. We had a great field. Uh, the border, Canadian border was closed and about half of the people that come to visit, um, Tulip Festival are, are, are from Canada. Okay. And so they, they didn't get to come, but we still had a record year, uh, in terms of, you know, we, we adjusted our business model a little bit. And so we, we really, really had, we're well supported, um, in, in 2021 and we had a great year. That nice. was, that was good. So then looking ahead for this year, what's kind of your guys's plan and goal this year? So the plan and goal for this year is, uh, it's that's farming. And what, what is different about this year that people will notice is that the historic floods of last fall smacked tulip town on the face, right? We, uh, so we planted, so again, so we plant every fall, Every year in the last 60 years, there's been a seven to 10 day window after about mid-September that it dries out so that you can plant your tulips. Um, That didn't happen this year. Not only did it not happen, we got, there was an inch and a half of rain on September 27th and it never dried out, still hasn't dried out. And so it's, well, a lot of times the question will be, well, can't you plant earlier? Well, the risk is if you plant early, like we, we had hoped to plant. I mean, if it were up to me, I'd plant the Tuesday, uh, you know, second, first Tuesday in September and call it good. The problem is that the water, the soil is too warm. And so you run the risk of molding your bulbs. Now tulips are a mountain flower, so they do like cold and they don't like water. Well, we had a warm and wet fall and we rotate, so we're on 26 acres there at Tulip Town, but every year we're in a four-year rotation okay. uh, to, for, for disease control. Well, it just so happens that the perfect storm, literally a perfect storm of weather, really, really thick clay and a low-lying field made it so that we were forced to plant our tulips in the mud that never dried out. Okay. And so we're, we're looking at a really at a catastrophic loss in terms of color. Um, there is, there are parts of the field where, you know, it's a five acre field. Um, there's parts of the field that are sandy and well-drained and the, the tulips are coming up just great. And there's parts of the field that are just, it's heartbreaking to do everything right. I mean, literally lying in the mud, you know, at 10 PM trying to fix a tractor. Cause you've got it in by a weather window, meaning it wasn't raining, doing everything you can, everything that can be done. I mean, we, we talked to every farmer that we knew. We talked, we called back to Holland. We called everyone and they said, well, one, you shouldn't plant tulips and clay. And we said, thanks for, thanks for that. <laughs> and if you had to plant tulips and clay, make sure it's dry. Also not an option and get the water off as soon as you can. And there's still, there's still water on the field right now. And so Fortunately, what we did is we doubled down on our gardens last fall. So our gardens uh, historically had had a fence around them. And that's not really consistent with our brand either. We don't like fences. And so we we took the fences down. If there's a flat place in our acre and a half garden, it's got a tulip planted on it. So we have our iconic... Uh, the windmill. We also have the indoor space uh, with the murals that are pretty famous. Yeah. Um, we've doubled down on on indoor um, attractions, if you will. Yeah. We know people love to come out and 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 position or 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 show everybody that they're there. We built Tulip Town, really rebuilt Tulip Town for Instagram. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've we've had to say, okay, if we can't have 
five acres of color, what can we do? Yeah. And again, totally consistent with who we are and what we think. We're going to take this punch and we're going to provide our guests with the the best experience we have. And I like to say that uh, you know people come to Tulip Festival for the tulips, at least at Tulip Town. Uh, we're we're going to be putting an exclamation point on the festival part of it, <laughs> although we do have amazing tulips. And yeah. we, just, we just won't have the five five acres of color that we've had in the past. And that's yeah. just, at the, at the end of the day, that's farming, and that's what historic floods yeah. look like. And it's it's super painful. And, you know, uh, we're, we're very public-facing, right? And that's by design. And so, you know, as a farmer... Mm to sit there and turn around to say, you know, it's one thing. And I've talked to people like, well, just reseed. It's like, that's a million dollars worth of bulbs. And I couldn't get them from Holland anyway. Oh. So there's no reseeding. It's not like potatoes or, or, or barley or something like that, where you just, you get one shot at it. And if the variables don't align, you know, when, when we bought Tulip Town, I asked uh, Don McMorn, who's the WSU extension director there in Skagit, I said, why are there only two bulb farmers left in, in Skagit Valley? And he said, you're going to find out. And we have absolutely found out. And uh, so as, as challenging it is, as it is, you know, we'll, we'll make the best of, of what we've got. We're, we're very gracious hosts. We love throwing a party. It's just yeah. my, my concern is that, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I have put ego aside a long time ago, but it is, it's, there's a measure of, of, of real pain that goes with, I'm going to, I've invited a half a million people over and they're expecting me to see five acres of tulips that I can't provide through no fault of my own. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean the. All of the stuff that's happened. I mean, farmers have the short end of the stick on every level. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the I remember. Um, so my wife grew. She grew up in Cedar Woolley, but was a lot more connected to Skagit uh-huh. than um, than I was growing up. But when tourists would come through, and they're like, "Well, why didn't like why didn't uh, why aren't the tulips here?" Or like in Stanwood, they're like, "Well, why aren't the snow geese like?" They're supposed to be here. They're yeah, you push be- a button and they come up, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's we had that conversation the other day where people just they don't care. They just can't. They want to see, uh, and that's that's not how it works. And so that's that's part of, I I love being an ambassador yeah. for all things Skagit, especially on the farming side. So I have no problem having conversations like this because I if you don't know, you don't know. But right. I think especially in the Pacific Northwest, we there there are tons of people in Seattle and Vancouver that do want to know. Yeah. They want to know where their food comes. It kind of gets to the, like, uh, you know, the real cost of food, Yeah, the real, you know, the, the, the grain economy that we're moving into and having more cover crops and why the birds are not a bad thing. Even if you do have cover crops, I, you know, we, we also own and operate Fairhaven mill and I tell people all the time, buy our flour, uh, you save the whales, buy our flour because the more local grain that we can get grown, the better the soil quality, the better the water quality, the better the salmon runs. Yeah. Right. So, you know, eat local in a way that's sustainable and, yeah. and really be connected. And I think people want to have that conversation. They want to feel connected yeah. to Skagit. And I'm really excited to, to, to help people, uh, you know, our urban neighbors to really connect with Skagit because it's not a park. That's the other thing that's really frustrating for, for farmers or landowners when people from, out of the community come in and, you know, it's fun to say respect the locals, but we really need to see that. Yeah. And, and I think there, there is a discerning measure of our, of our urban neighbors who they understand that there, you just don't park in a farmer's front yard to take pictures of snow geese. You just, that's, that's disrespectful. And, and it, it sours it for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I think that if we, once, when we can figure out how to, to make a connection um, and, and an actual, like an authentic connection. I, I, I think that authenticity is, is our greatest strength in Skagit Valley. And, and it had, there's two ends of that stick. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, and then figuring out the highest and best use. Cause I, I say that the, you know, the laws of economics and gravity are not to be trifled with. If we cannot figure out a way to sustainably connect commerce to yeah. our natural beauty, then it's going to get weirder quicker and nobody wants that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you guys have, I know obviously we've got, April, which is tulip time. Um, but as you look throughout the calendar year, uh, I know we actually went, I think, two years ago. Uh, I th- actually, I think it was in 2020 that we went to the, when you guys had the pumpkin festival. Oh, the harvest. Yes, the harvest yes. at Tulip Town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a reason every season to be in Skagit Valley. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And and certainly at Tulip Town, we like to say it's the spring and the fall. Um, I'm. We also own and operate uh, Skagit Acres there in, in South Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm used to be Skagit Valley Gardens. Okay. And uh, that's 26 acres on I-5. And so the idea is that we'll, we'll move some of the things off of the Skagit Flats to give our neighbors a break because I don't think – I think they love living there every, every season. Um, but, uh, you know, being right on I-5 
is an opportunity. We, when we purchased that property really as a platform where anyone driving through Skagit Valley would yeah. be able to stop and have a quintessential Skagit experience. I mean, we've got an amazing gift shop in there full of locally made things, a lot like you do here at the yeah. Commons. Um, little cafe, you know, it's a garden center, but it's the, it's the 20 acres of, of ag land that's around there that we're excited about developing and really, and, and figuring out how is it that we can make the, this Skagit experience as approachable to somebody who's just driving through, or they may be here for two hours or two days or two weeks, yeah. right? We, we want to be able to, 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 and I, it chokes in my throat to say commercialize, but to make an exchange of value yeah. that, that actually works. And yeah. so we feel like if we can do that then other businesses will, will, will follow and we'll be able to not only, not only help the, the current existing farmers, but also inspire a rising generation of people who want to do things better and different that are connected to the ground. Yeah. 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 No. And I think, I think that's important. Um, I, I have a lot of discussion, um, on this podcast about businesses and, and how, um, you know, spe- especially small business, locally owned, um, but that it brings value to the people in the community. Um, Camino Stanwood has seen a large growth in small businesses, mm-hmm. and in each one of them brings their flavor of whatever they're bringing to the table, mm-hmm. and it benefits the whole community. Totally. Because the people that, you know, the kids that are going through high school and stuff, they work at those shops. Mm-hmm. And the the money that you spend at those shops goes back into the community. Right. And, um, I, I, I think there's this weird blend that we, the fact that we call a corporate business and a small business businesses is a very weird thing because they're completely different things. Yeah. Yeah, the models are totally different. Um, and so I think when we add in, you know, people are like, well, we don't want to commercialize it. We don't want to have more businesses here. It's like, no, you just want to have the right businesses here. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. And and that really speaks to the quality of life. And I, and that's one thing that I keep coming back to. If, if we have a, a, a touchstone, it is it w- is this good long-term for the quality of life in our community. Yeah. Um, be, because that that is, you know, that small business, that three to five person business that can become a 35 person business, but it's it, it can create you know, intergenerational wealth. And, and, you know, I, I'm on the board at Viva Farms uh, there in, in, at the Port of Skagit. And, uh, you know, I'm just shocked at how, I, I shouldn't be, but I'm delighted that, you know, on, on average, our, our, the Viva Farmers are, are netting $25,000 an acre, right? That, that's money that they can send their kids to college with, yeah. right? That is, that is the American dream that's, it's, that's playing out. Uh, and I, I love that we get to do that in our community. Uh, yeah. and, and more than half of those farmers are Latino uh, and, and women. Yeah. Right. And, and that's so, so exciting to be a part of because you would not, uh, I guess, and it's my own ignorance, but you wouldn't expect that. And so I yeah. delight, I extra delight yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Um, have, I know that we, Skagit, Stanwood, all of them, like you've seen these farming communities continue to shrink. Mm-hmm. Does there seem to be any sort of resurgence in more people at least interested in it? Or I think there is an interest and then they figure out that maybe what they attracted to them to it, uh, maybe isn't what pays the bills. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this romanticized idea and I got sucked into it as well. Right. Of, uh, and, and nobody can really explain it. I, I talked to a couple of friends, even at, the, at, at WSU about that. And there's this idea that it's either this Jeffersonian democracy, you know, the, of the, the citizen farmer, um, or we just like open space. Right. <laughs> and I think it's probably both. Like we, I like the idea of the open space and I certainly enjoy being, being outside, um, working with my hands and, covered in sweat and dust and diesel and that's it has a, an, a strange lure i guess for some people yeah um but i think it's figuring out the business models at work and what is encouraging is that there is there are more people there's a willingness to pay that is i think on trend with a rising generation who are willing to tell the story when yeah. i when commodity farmers you know it's it's about grow it and throw it now, they have absolutely the same commitment to their families and to the land as a, in, as a three-acre farmer. Yeah. Um, what's different is that that three-acre farmer is on TikTok every morning, right? They're, they are choosing to connect in new and different ways to, yeah. to an audience, uh, and they'll, they'll benefit from that. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't know that every farmer needs to be on TikTok, yeah. right? But I do know for some, for some businesses that makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So on, on top of um, Tulip Town, you've mentioned uh, Fairhaven Mills and uh, Skagit Acres. Yeah. Um, where are you guys, like, I know you're focused on Skagit. What are all the different pieces that you guys are? No, so are we have one more. We had one rule when we started Spinach Bus, and this is Randy Howard, our CFO, said, hey, no restaurants. 
<laughs> and uh, if you figured out in the last little bit, I, rules aren't really my jam. Uh, and so we found out that a good friend and classmate of ours, uh, uh, Josie Urbic, uh, she was a free agent. She was the, she had been the, um, executive chef at the Seattle art museum. Okay. And so we'd all track Josie's, uh, food and, and, and she's an amazing chef and she was a free agent and we said, Hey, if, what if, <laughs> and, and my team hates it when I say what if, but, uh, and actually this wasn't my fault. This was Rachel said, Hey, it looks like Josie's a free agent. And I said, well, if Rachel's on board with us bringing Josie in. So I reached out to Josie and she said, let's have a chat. Uh, we connected with the Port of Skagit. They had a, a vacant restaurant up there. And so the, 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 uh, the chocolate and peanut butter were, were that we had a world-class chef and they had a restaurant. And so we were able to make a, a, a deal work that, that worked for us for opening a restaurant, not only opening a restaurant, but opening a restaurant during a pandemic. And so we have Skagit <laughs> Landing um, with Chef Josie Urbic, just amazing food. It's, it's actually on the runway up there at the Port of Skagit. Okay. Um, if you've, it, it's a great place to go up and have an amazing food and watch the planes take off. Um, it, it's something that we... We really are happy to bring to the community because, again, being from Skagit, we like to to brag about Skagit. Yeah. And you know, there are a couple of great restaurants in Skagit, uh, and we felt like we could use one more. And yeah. you know, that's kind of a destination. Hey, let's go up to the landing and, and grab grab lunch. Um, we also there's this uh, so Westland Distillery is is in town now. We know there's there's uh, catering opportunities that are going to come with Westland putting Skagit on the whiskey map. Um, the Amazon facility that's just down the street from us, and in addition to supporting all of the businesses on the, the at the business park there at the Port of Skagit, and so that's that's really as much a story about us trying to level up yeah. uh, in, in the community. And of course, Josie took a big risk, the port took a big risk, and and uh, we feel like it, it it is a good good experience for us. So that's just one more thing, yeah. one more do hard thing. Uh, and, and Josie is just she's she's a phenomenal businesswoman and a great chef and. We're, we're so very fortunate that she, she jumped on with us. Yeah, that's awesome. So you guys have, um, so what is your kind of, uh, obviously you're very heavily involved with Tulip Town. Mm -hmm. Um, what's your involvement with the other aspects? So I, uh, after last summer, after, after harvest, so I had been going all out as the, you know, the full-time CEO of, of all the partners, um, after June of last year, I was the only one that was full-time. And okay. so we, I had gone from, you know, 18 hour days literally over 500 hours last April. Uh, and then I had to get bulbs out of the ground and then trying to make sure that the mill, you know, thinks that's an operating business in and of itself with breaking, you know, uh, breaking news here and there and, and yeah. trying to keep up with customers. And, and so last September, uh, my partner seeing that the spark was starting to dim in, in my eyes a little bit through just, just the sheer, the sheer weight. Yeah. Uh, we brought on uh, Kristen Keltz uh, as the as the full time CEO to manage the day to day stuff, so that it could take a little bit of the of the the immediate pressure off of me, and so that I could continue to focus on on the the strategy stuff. And so we started. We also um, in in the midst of all this, my phone would never stop ringing from people saying, "Hey." Uh, I like what you did over here. Could you help me with my business? And and I would do what I could in between calls or driving to and from the businesses. And we said, hey, what if we started uh, Spinach Bus Solutions, which is our, our consulting okay. uh, branch? And so th that's what I do now. Okay. Um, I of course I'm, I'm I love the day to day. They have to ask me to leave the meetings sometimes because I have so many ideas. But uh, uh, but now the idea factory between my ears gets to go to work on behalf of the rest of the community, which is really again consistent with their brand. And so yeah. we're working with uh, Helping Hands Food Bank and Cedra Woolley. Um, just it, it, that's I really enjoy that. Now that people can reach out and uh, I, I can help more broadly at a level that really gets me out of bed and is, and is, uh, not, it, it puts energy into my day instead of, and there's nothing that I, that I did that I didn't enjoy. It's just the sheer, the sheer 18 hour day volume day. of, and then again with the kids and, and all that other fun stuff that the rest of my life is like, Hey, let's put a little balance and put a little spark back in, in Andrew's eye and in time for festival. And <clears> of course, it'll be extra sparky with, uh, with the way that it is right now. Yeah. But you know, that's, that, that, that's life. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's that, that's what I do. On top of being a PD commissioner, yeah, uh, yeah, we didn't even is, mention that. Yeah, and, and that's I want to say that's it's not it is the it is the easiest thing that I do. Just because the PUD right now is so the Skagit PUD is so well run, I I really enjoy working with the other commissioners um, and being able to to really to try to to champion doing things new. Uh, and, and champion innovation and, and making sure that our, our, our public infrastructure is positioned for the future instead of trying to navigate by the rearview mirror. So yeah. that's, that's, 
Yeah, I do a little bit of that too. Yeah. How did how did you get kind of involved in that? What kind of sparked that to make? Oh, uh, it's think, another oh, one of those. That. Yeah, no, I tried to get everybody else to do it, and they said, "Nope, you should do it." Uh, water is so important to Skagit Valley, and uh, it it's also PD commissioner and port commissioner are the only part time elected officials in in Skagit Valley, um, other than city. And I live in the county, so the only one only one's option for me. And and the the district one opened up, and I said, "Yeah, this is some water is really important, and it's a seated at, at a table." We need to have um, the the farmer voice, the visionary voice, yeah. the disruptor voice. Quite frankly, um, and and I enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, and, and it's one of those civic duty things. Like, well, I was just raised to step up, and it looks like the community could need me, and if they want me, they'll pick me, and they did. Very cool. Yeah. So so you you do all of these other things. Um, what do you kind of hope as um, the future for for Skagit Valley? I really think I I hope you know from a I would love to see Skagit Valley embrace uh, a theme of resilience because I think internally we're all very individually we're very resilient. Yeah, uh, I grew up sandbagging the Skagit River, right, and and that was the whole the whole community we get together and bag sand, and then we go back to our lives, and and it could be just by virtue of our Scandinavian and German background, you know, you meet a church and you wave and everybody's nice, and then you go back to your lives at a systems level. We're not doing it as well as we could. Mm. And and I think that we're starting to see a little bit more of that. I would love to see us embrace um, some of our collective opportunities and work work together across the community. I, I really think that it's our natural beauty that's going to set us apart. Yeah. And being and distinguishing, uh, being distinguished means that we can command a higher price. Yeah. So we're going to be able to get more because we offer more. And I think if we offer more in terms of, of an experience, it's almost like, and I use the example of Tillamook all the time. You go down to Tillamook and you know, you have a, you, you have a spiritual experience with ice cream or cheese, right? Yeah. And then you revisit that every time that you're at the dairy counter yeah. and, and every store or wherever. And, and truth be told, half, most of that milk's coming out of Boardman, which is not Tillamook, right? <laughs> so the business model lacks authenticity, um, but we have the opportunity to do that in Skagit where people would continue to support it because they come up and they enjoy the tulips. They come up and they, they, they love the birds. They, they may or may not know that the Skagit River is the third largest river system on the West Coast, right? And, and so they, we, we know these things, but we, we haven't made the connection commercially to be able to say, this is important to me. I want to support it with my time and my treasure. Yeah. And I think we have a huge opportunity uh, to, to do that. We now need to position existing businesses and start new businesses in our communities that will, that are, are oriented towards that. Yeah. Uh, and that's disruptive and existing businesses may or may not see it. And unfortunately there are a lot of people who, who I who will cross the street when they see me coming cause they don't like that. And, and, and that's unfortunate. I think that's, that's common in any, any community. Nobody yeah. wants, nobody chooses to be disrupted. Right. Right. Uh, the alternative is, and, and I love the Abraham Lincoln quote of the, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Yeah. And so if we can make these investments and take, make the policy, calculated policy risks in the direction of creating uh, and facilitating and, and connecting these types of businesses. And I think that's where we start to get the wins. Yeah, that's very cool. That's awesome. Uh, well, I'm excited for Skagit Valley. I'm excited to be a part of it. Yeah, me too. All right. So I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? I bought Duolingo Pro. I love foreign okay. language. And so, yeah, my son had Duolingo Pro and he was killing me on the, all the points. And so I bought Duolingo <laughs> Pro and I, I love Duolingo. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. What what language are you currently working on? Spanish and Portuguese. I do Portuguese in the morning uh, because I'm half asleep. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I, I get up really early, about 4 a.m. And so I do some Portuguese and then at night I do Spanish. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? You know, I think that depends on the season, but if I were to say, I, I was thinking about this on the way down to as well as a, but for statement, but for this person, in my life would be completely, completely different. I, I had a, a mentor when I was a young father, uh, in Puyallup, um, Marty, who really, really helped me, uh, to, to, to start to think clearly about things to, and to really kind of put aside, um, perspectives that didn't work for me that maybe yep. I've been, I, I'd been raised with. And so, yeah, Marty Daybell is the guy for me on that one. Yeah. Nice. Um, <clears throat> okay. And fill in the blank in this question. Mm. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank dance with my wife, right? My wife has never danced with me, not at our wedding, never. Right. And so I think that is weird. <laughs> That's something to remember and no shade. She's the most <laughs> wonderful person in the world. She just doesn't want to dance. And so one of these days, maybe I'll, I'll get her to dance That's with me. 
That's great. Have you done a lot of dancing? Then? Oh, I love to dance. Yeah, especially when nobody, like nobody's watching. Okay. Right? I'm not a good dancer, but. Uh... <laughs> awesome. Um, who is an interesting or fascinating person that I should interview next? I would interview my friend Don McMorrin from WSU okay. Extension. He, nobody knows the, 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 nobody's got his finger on the pulse of Skagit agriculture or, you know, even in North Walk, uh, uh, Snohomish and Whatcom than Don McMorrin. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's the first person I called when I moved back to the Valley and said, what, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. And then what piece of advice would you give your 20 year old self? I would tell my 20 year old self to slow down. Right. I, I, like I said, I lived in three times fast forward uh, and I, I feel like I missed uh, a lot of the experiences on hurry onto something else because I thought there was something better. So I, I would tell myself to slow down. Yeah. Well, I before we jump into the very end, um, I completely forgot to mention in here, but you actually have your own podcast that oh, hopefully yeah. is going to be revived at some point, but you've got Connect Skagit. I do, yeah. So tell us just a little bit about that. Well, and this is one of the things that sprung out of my my campaign is I the, the part of running for public office that I enjoyed the most was talking to people. And I would just have so many fan, just fantastic stories. I know meeting people and I said, well, people, more people should know that. Uh, and, and podcast is a great, you know, form to go, to, to go long on. Uh, and, and so I said, well, I think I'm going to do this. I'm going to do connect Skagit. And, uh, my, my son, uh, was the producer and he's supposed to have taught his sister how to do it. And then he went off and moved to Ecuador. And so that's why I, I, I read somewhere. I was like, if you can get to 10, 10 podcasts, <laughs> then you're, you know, you're going to keep it good. And I think I got to 15 and then my producer left, but we'll have to, <laughs> I have people stop me all the time. He's like, Hey, Andrew, I miss your podcast. You should get that going again. But yeah, it's Skagit stories. And I love, love, love sharing. And you know, I love being an ambassador for Skagit. And that's one of the ways to do it. You're yeah. doing a great job on this one too, by the way. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Andrew Miller for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash podcast. That's commandocommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.